Yo, 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 sup, critical thinking listeners. This is Justin Gardner, aka Rhino Reader, and I am rolling solo today. Joel uh, got some con flu and is out. Um, so I've got my I've got my water and I've got a whole list of awesome news topics. Um, it's been a couple weeks since we've been able to do any news or write up coverage or anything like that. So we have an absolute doozy today. Um, we have one, two, three, four, five, at least five awesome write-ups we need to cover. Um, so I'm gonna take a sip and we'll get started. Okay, um, first one up on the list today is, uh, of course, oh, and also for any of you that are listening that also want to watch, um, I've got my, because Joel isn't here today, I'm going to add a little bit of the visual stimulus, stimulation that uh, Joel normally provides and share my screen um, for those of you that are watching on YouTube. So hopefully you should be able to follow along there as well. Um, alrighty, so uh, the first the first thing we were going to cover is, uh, of course, if James Kettle ever releases anything, then we need to jump on that right away. Um, and he does it once again this year at DEF CON. He does every single year, drops some crazy research. This year, it's called Smashing the State Machine, the True Potential of Web Race Conditions. Um, and this is a great read. It's actually not that long um, as opposed to or as compared to some of his other um, research that he's released. And it's a really like beautiful and simple technique um, to really uh, improve upon race conditions. Um, so to give you the TLDR of it, there's a couple things that we need to take away and talk about from, um, on this, excuse me, from this research. Um, the first one is the fact that race conditions often take uh, advantage of or abuse this thing called the state machine, which is why he's, he's writing about it, uh, and why I made it into the title. So, um, as the application is processing a request, it transfers between different states, um, and abusing those states is what makes the race condition. So he has a really great example here of, um, a, a, a race condition, which is not a particularly hard to, um, to reproduce race condition or a particularly technically challenging race condition. Um, but essentially, uh, when you're signing up for a, a an account, um, there would be a post to, this is an example he has here, a post to slash login, and then a post to, or a get to um, slash role. And he kind of maps out here the different states that the machine goes through. Um, when you, you know, you're, your login state when before you do slash uh, post to slash login is null. And then after you have logged in, you assume that uh, because it redirects you directly to slash role that um, you know your account goes into a pending state. That's what it looks like on the screen. That's what the user makes the assumption off of. And then after you uh, select your role, it does a post to slash role and assigns you the role. However, you can only be assigned the role that you, you know, are allowed to select from the list on the slash get or uh, on the slash role page. Um, and so that's the way that that this sort of state machine um, flow uh, went according to, you know, our, the natural progression of our thought. However, he noticed that um, when you are able to intercept the application uh, before you hit slash role, um, by default, your account gets assigned admin permissions. Um, and this is an example of the state machine doing something a little bit funky. Um, and this is a, this is a multi-step race condition. You know, there's, if we just pause before slash, slash roll and then do a request somewhere else, then we have admin permissions and that's great. Um, but, uh, but so this is a multi-step, this takes multiple requests, but uh, the assumption then that he uh, explores within the rest of the uh, paper is that there are these sort of sub-states that happen within the processing of a single HTTP request. Um, and then how can we abuse these sub-states to get us access to crazy cool functionality? So that's the first thing you need to understand this whole concept of substates. Um, let's say, you know, during the application, there's a line of code that says, okay, you know, users added by default, give them admin permissions or set, you know, the role to zero or something like that, which is also, uh, you know, admin. And then later on in that same code flow, it says, um, 
okay, now update the role to staff in the example that they that he had here. Um, how do we catch it at that at that you know at the the timing between when we have the admin role and the staff role is assigned between that in order to exploit that. And so that's kind of what he talks about through the rest of the um, the paper is this concept of substates and how to hit those. And um, due to race conditions being very tricky with um, you know distance between you to the target server and uh, just you know the con um, the sequential nature of HTTP 1.1. Uh, race conditions have been very challenging. And in the past, uh, James has talked about this whole concept of a uh, of a last last byte sync, which is, allows us to get really, really um, fast and well-timed uh, race conditions uh, in HTTP 1.1. And this uh, attack that is the second concept that we want to explore during this uh, this sort of summary of his research is the single packet attack. And that is sort of a way to do something similar, but a little bit better for uh, HTTP 2. And the reason this is possible is uh, because HTTP 2 is not a, a protocol that has to be um, sent uh, synchronously, you know, or um, Sequentially, excuse me, it can also be it can be sent concurrently, um, and it can be split across multiple uh, TCP packets. And so, um, yeah. So the concept here is, and let's see if I can find the part of the uh, applic or the uh, blog here, so that you can see it for those of you that are watching along on YouTube. Um, yeah. So. Uh, he said, you know, this concept essentially was already explored back in 2020. Actually, there's another reference to it up here, I believe. Eh, I can't, I can't find it. This is, this is the struggle with actually, you know, having the screen on. Um, oh, here it is right here. Yeah. This is inspired by a presentation back in 2020. And if you look at this, um, timeless timing attacks presentation that he mentions in the blog, um, you know, this is, this is just another example of James going and finding research that was definitely undervalued and just reading a bunch of weird papers and then being like, oh, wait, I can do something crazy with this and then taking it. And this is what he's done for the past years. Um, so it really talks to the importance of, um, finding sort of way out there, you know, uh, not in the mainstream of, of InfoSec research, reading it just out of pure curiosity and then building upon it. So the whole concept for this single packet attack is um, he, he talks about essentially sending the full body, um, the headers, uh, if you have, if you have um, a body in your HTTP request, sending the body except for the last byte, um, <clears throat> and then having taking advantage of something called Nagel's algorithm, which is a sort of a TCP optimization um, that was made in order to solve something called the small packet problem in TCP. Um, but essentially what this allows you to do is build up a, a buffer of, of data um, up to the maximum segment side, size, MSS, and then send that all at once. And so what essentially he's abusing here is sending the last byte of all of these um, HTTP requests that he wants to send in one TCP packet. And that will, using, using and abusing here, Nagel's algorithm for this. And what that will ensure is that all of these HTTP requests get um, completed at the same time when that TCP packet is, is processed by the, by the server. Um, and that allows us to not only have you know all of them syncing within sub one millisecond, which is phenomenal, but also it allows um, it allows us to delete any sort of network jitter. Um, where's the mention to it? I think it's up here. Yeah, you can see like normal requests will have network latency and jitter that you've got to um, you know accommodate for. But this single packet attack can literally get it to sub millisecond synchronization. Um, across these these requests, which is just amazing for race conditions. Uh, really great idea. Um, and I really like here how he also mentions, uh, has a section of the write-up called rolling your own implementation. 
Um, and this is this kind of breaks down the HTTP2 um, configuration that you should use, the way that you should um, modify an HTTP2 library in order to be able to roll your own implementation of the single packet attack. And it's surprisingly simple. Um, like he says here, you know, it can fit into one little screen segment. Um, and the TLDR of it is, um, if the request has no body, send all the headers, but do not send the end stream flag. Now, the end stream flag is a flag that's attached to a HTTP2 request um, that indicates uh, you know, uh, something about that request, right? And so if you don't add the end stream flag, it indicates that that, that, that request is not complete yet um, and that the server should not start processing it. Uh, if the request does have a body, send all the headers and the body data except for the final byte, sort of like a last, uh, last byte sync attack from last year. Um, and what, the reason for that is that it says you might be tempted to send the full body and rely on not sending the end stream, but he's done some uh, experimentation with HTTP2 servers and some of them will just ignore the end stream, you know, the fact that the end stream flag is not present and just um, start processing the request anyway, which breaks your race condition. So you can see he's really done his research here. Um, and it's a really simple and beautiful algorithm. And it should be, uh, he says right here, you should be able to verify that all of the packet, that all of the requests um, lend in a single packet using Wireshark. So it should be pretty easy to validate that your attack is actually working properly using this. And of course, they've integrated all of this stuff into Burp as well, as per the usual flow with um, with James in the in the port swigger team. Um, the, the, the other shout out that I wanted to make here was uh, I, I bounced over to the um, HTTP2 RFC. Uh, and this is actually like a pretty manageable size RFC, right? Like it, some of them are like, really, really long and really, really, um, you know, <laughs> hard to read. But this actually seems pretty manageable in size. So I think um, I, I I haven't done it yet, just just full disclosure. But I think after this, after this, I record this podcast, I'm going to go through here and just read through this because I think it could be really helpful to know, um, you know, what all of this looks like. And HTTP is such a core part of being a solid web hacker, obviously. Um, you know, you spend so much time in the requests uh, and HTTP2 is just going to continue to grow in popularity. So the more and more familiar we are with this, and I'm, I'm very familiar with HTTP 1.1. Um, so I think it might be time to take that deep dive and learn a little bit more about HTTP2. Um, yeah, and then the last thing that I wanted to highlight in this write-up with James uh, was... Um, his example here. Um, so he's talking about uh, a vulnerability that he found. He always goes and tries to, you know, exploit this on bug bounties to show proof of concept, which I really appreciate. Um, and uh, one of the ones that he found, one of the vulns he mentioned here. Uh, also, I'll back up really quick and say, you you have to go and read this whole. You have to have to have to go and read this whole paper because he uh, explains all of these really in depth. Um, mentality and methodology um, approaches uh, and and the, just the way he's thinking about finding these race condition vulnerabilities that is really phenomenal. Um, and I'm actually not going to spoil it here so that you have to go and read it. Um, uh, but it, it changed the way that I look at race conditions and the way that I, I'm able to identify race conditions when I don't have code. And it's, it's hard to do it even when you have code. So anyway, going back to GitLab, um, he found a bug on GitLab, and essentially what it was was changing his email. And he noticed that when he race conditioned the change email endpoint, what would happen is sometimes he would get a um, an email containing the confirmation code for a different email at his email. Okay, so let's say for example he's he does a race condition and he changes his email to um, test one, and then he changes it to test two really fast, right? So he, he might get a, a, um, an email with the confirmation code for test one at the test two address or vice versa, the test one email at the test two address. And the reason for that was really cool. Um, and I, I appreciated the way he broke it down, um, which was that um, when you changed your email, a function was called and that function would um, get passed into it as a parameter, the email that the, that the email should be sent to the email address that um, uh, the confirmation email should be sent to. And that would be, you know, and I feel like this is a pretty common, I feel like this is a pretty reasonable way of coding it, right? Um, so pass that in as a parameter. And then um, inside that function, this is asynchronously, uh, it would um, generate the, the email body using a templating engine, right? And that templating engine 
the variable for the confirmation code would get um, generated uh, via uh, templating, of course. So it's pulling it straight, it, it, and the way that it's, it's configured here is it's pulling it straight from the database, right? So what would happen is you would send the first request, um, that email would get passed into the function which would you know, define the templating for, um, for the email and send out the email. And then by the time that templating engine was ready to, in, to create the body of the email and insert the confirmation, um, the confirmation token that was associated with that account, that confirmation token will have changed because the second request will have already come in and generated a new confirmation token. Right, so that token is getting inserted into the body of the of the email, and that email is being sent to the original address, which is being passed in via that original, um, excuse me, by that that original parameter to the function. So that's how a, a mismatched confirmation token can get associated with his, uh, you know, with a with an email uh, and sent to a different email. It's really cool. Really like that bug, and I think it's also really cool. I'll uh, I'll see if I can find it in here. I'm so so bad at finding things on the fly. Um, somewhere in this in this write up, yeah, you can still view it on my profile. He says so we can click on this, and it says it still has his this email, which is unconfirmed, that uh, is associated with his account. It's very cool. Um, all right, so that's all I had for uh, James Kettle's write-up, um, and I'm, I'm going to try to, you know, as I go through some of the deeper write-ups today, I'm going to try to sort of pepper in a little bit less technically dense content um, to kind of give your brain a refresher. Um, so uh, the next thing that I wanted to talk about then is uh, this tweet by uh, Alex Chapman, and essentially what he's doing right now is he is creating, he's tweeting out uh, an automation development diary. So as he is building his own um, bug bounty automation over time, uh, he's tweeting out how it's going. And I think this is really insightful for those of you that, and Alex is a top hacker. We've had him on the podcast. He's, he's phenomenal, right? Um, so for those of you that are are a little bit bummed, like, oh man, my recon's going all weird, just know Alex Chapman has spent over two days at this point on on just getting the scope and stuff like that for from all these different programs and getting it all into consolidated into one format in one spot. Um, and I'm sure there'll be lots of other raw um, lessons learned and uh, success, uh, successes and failures along the way. So definitely keep an eye out for his Bug Bounty Automation Development Diary series on Twitter. Okay, water time. Alrighty. <clears throat> Next piece of research. Super lit. Once again, Sarush coming in, dropping some fire on IIS. Um, excuse me, I've got a little bit of, of nasal congestion as well. Um, yeah, so Sarush once again dropping some crazy fire on IIS here. Um, <laughs> this, this bug just, just is crazy to me. This is the cookie-less uh, duo drop IIS auth bypass in app pool privesque on ASP.NET framework. Um, and this is a CVE from this year. This is a newer, newer technique. Um, <clears throat> So the TLDR of this is essentially um, in when you're when you're using ASP.NET um, in, in IIS, um, you can send a open parentheses s open parentheses any text close parentheses close parentheses or I'm sorry with a slash in the in the beginning as well so slash open parentheses capital S open parentheses any text close parentheses close parentheses this is the struggle of doing this on on audio medium um, and essentially that will get processed as a cookie um, in the .NET framework and then stripped out of the freaking um, path right so it's it's like classically excuse me this is like a, a beautiful beautiful way to circumvent any sorts of um, uh, IAS restricted paths, right? So it could be you've got path restrictions in IIS itself. It could be that you've got um, path restrictions in, uh, you know, an Nginx proxy that's sitting in front of IIS, you know, whatever it is. Um, there are times when you want to wall off a specific endpoint, and it's uh, it's very common to do that using a reverse proxy. And this just totally like destroys all of that. And um, for those of you that are following along on YouTube, you can see right here this this just is crazy to me. So let's say we've got an endpoint um, called slash web form slash uh, protected, uh, and 
you shouldn't be able to access anything and protect it, right? So what he does here is slash web form, slash, and then that S uh, parentheses X thing that I mentioned, and then slash pro, pro T, right? So the first couple, the first four characters of protected, and then he just inserts in there the slash S X sort of combo thing, right? And then he says, acted at the end of that. Now, what's going to happen is that slash SX thing is just going to get totally deleted from the path. We can see it down here. He he cites the code, um, this remove app um, path modifier piece of code. And you can see right here that it returns um, the path with without the, the little um, session cookie indicator in there. Um, and just strips it right out, which allows you to just perfectly bypass any sort of path-based restrictions. Um, super awesome, love this technique. And then there's this other thing down here called uh, related to application pool confusion. And um, I'm gonna be perfectly honest with you, I didn't like super fully understand this, but from what it looks like to me is you can use this um, cookie-less session token injection in here in order to get your path um, or, or the code that you're running within a specific path uh, uh, executed within a different context, which is an application pool in IIS, um, which can allow for the escalation of privileges. Say, for example, you don't have the ability to run uh, ASPX code or whatever in a specific app pool, but you do in another. How can you get the code that's in that non-executable path to run in the other application pool. And this is, is possible via this um, cookie-less injection. Once again, definitely worth a read. And um, so definitely check out Sarush's blog. Um, we'll link it down below, but it's sarush.me um, for those of you that don't, don't know it already. Um, and so really cool, really cool research here. Um, I'll mention as well that at the beginning of this blog, he says, uh, for a deeper dive into security issues stemming from the use of cookie-less sessions, consider these references. So um, he lists uh, uh, three other places where you can go and read about it. And I absolutely read this one right here, uh, the isec.pl blog, which is um, excellent as well. And this guy, uh, Paveo, I believe is how that's pronounced. Um, he talks about um, using this for XSS when a, a path is being resolved from a, a, a squiggly path, right? A, um, a tilde path um, to, a, uh, to a, an actual path, an arbitrary path. Um, and so for those of you following along, you can see right here that he's able to inject into that because that session token is, is an important part of what should be associated with that path and use that to get XSS. Once again, a cool XSS technique for any of those that are into automation, uh, XSS automation, this could definitely be something really cool to uh, do mass scanning for. If you can find this um, reflected in, into, the, um, into the body of the request, then that it would be really cool. Um, or the body of the response, and that would be really cool. Um, the one thing that I wanted to highlight from this, which, ah, here it is right here, is that um, it's not only open parentheses, S, open parentheses, any text, close parentheses, close parentheses that works, but also you can um, sub that S for an A or an F. The A is an anonymous ID and the F is a form authentication token. Now, being able to specify some of this stuff in the URL is also just kind of weird. Um, and I feel like it could definitely be used for session fixation or um, if you could get sort of like a, a client-side path traversal of sorts, like you could inject your own session token into it, right? If you get a client-side path traversal, you could inject your own session into that request and then take the data that's in that request and associate it with your own account rather than with the victim's account, um, which I think has a lot of potential there. Um, and then, yeah, uh, so this is also just helpful for bypassing uh, like WAFs or anything that might be, they might be catching on, maybe they see Sarush's blog and they say, okay, all right, we got to block, you know, any of this cookie list stuff and they block just the S, but then you've also got A and F you can use as well. So keep that in mind. Um, okay. Uh, that's all I had for Sarusha's stuff. Definitely go check out the blog. Um, I will link it down in, in the description as always. Uh, we, the, the description might be a little long this time around, so we might have to host it somewhere else, but we'll figure that out. Okay. Um, 
unfortunately, we're going straight into another highly technical piece right now. So bear with me, um, and we'll 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 hang in there. This is a really cool blog, so I think you'll like it. Okay. Um, next one is Ophion Security released a write up. Um, Customer account takeover in Shopify stores. Um, this is Rosian. Um, amazing bug as always. Shopify. Uh, <laughs> there's just so much cool stuff. So many, so many cool pieces of functionality to play around with on Shopify. Um, so uh, it's always cool to see them as a target. Um, all right. So the way. Let's see. What, what, what did I want to highlight here? Um, let me look at my notes really quickly. Yeah. Okay. So. I, we won't go through every single step of this of this write up, but I did want to to um, mention that this specific bug takes advantage of a couple um, sort of quirks. Okay, so the first one is this concept of an unverified email address being associated with your account. Okay, um, and I, I imagine on the back end, for any of you blue blue teamers out there or devs. There's a couple ways to implement this. You could put the e unverified email as the actual email for the account and then add a flag like is email verified true false somewhere else in the user object, right? Or you could put the email in its own unverified email attribute of the user object and um, then move it to the verified email object whenever you do anything. Um, the latter is way more secure, and the former, unfortunately, is what we see here, which I think causes a massive vulnerability. So, um, what happens is when you sign up for a shop account, you can um, you can change your email address or you can specify an email address, and uh, they will send a uh, a confirmation email to that email address. But for the time being, your email is still you know that email. Um, and so this is weird. This is weird. Um, and we always want to, whenever you have an unverified email, this sort of looks like this. This is specifically um, interesting when there's only one email associated with your account. So this is not like a change email sort of feature. This is when you've signed up for an account and the only email they have associated with you is this unverified email, right? Because then, you know, there's a better chance that that email is actually the primary email associated with your account. Um, and so, uh, Essentially, what they do here is they take this unverified email account and they abuse the ShopPay OAuth workflow to log into uh, a different uh, log into a store. Okay, so I have this one line highlighted right here that I really I really want you to to dial in on. Even though a store may not have the sign in with Shop uh, feature, I guess fully enabled. Uh, and displayed in their store, it is still possible to access the shop pay OAuth directly via this endpoint. Okay, so what they've done here is they've shown mastery, they've shown in-depth knowledge of the product because they are familiar with this concept of there is a sign-in with shop feature that can be enabled and dis disabled, and even when it's disabled, it's still there. It's just not in the UI, right? Um, this is incredibly important for those of you that are looking to develop this sort of um, spidey sense or this sort of understanding of how to find these more complex vulns. Any features that you can turn on or off or that are accessible part of the time but not accessible the other parts of the time, you have to validate that. Because just because it's not in the UI or just because it's not a part of the normal flow doesn't mean you can't force navigate to it and then you know insert yourself in the middle of this sort of you know, crazy flow that that they've they've you know configured here, and so that's exactly what Erosion and the Ophion security team do here. Um, they hit, they take their unverified email um, shop account, and they use that to sign in with Shop into a into a Shopify store. Um, and in the end of the day, I think it's not as simple as just hitting that endpoint. I think they also have to um, hit some endpoints to get the cookies that they need. And this also shows further mastery of the of the application. They know which cookies need to be swapped for what and what cookies are providing authentication in the context of the Shopify store, um, which will allow them to uh, gain access to you know, a fully validated account. So this is this is very important, and it goes it goes to the concept of um, understanding 
you know, anytime you look at a HTTP request, you're just going to see a block of cookies because of tracking, because of all this and that and the other thing. But it's very important to use something like maybe request minimizer, even just do this manually, removing all of the fluff and getting down to what is actually useful in, in the application. Figure out what is what is resulting in authentication, what is uh, affecting the application directly. And once you've narrowed that down, you have a much greater chance of finding vulnerabilities in those components because there isn't so much fluff around. Okay, so um, that's what they've done here and that's what results in the, uh, or the account takeover for them. Um, man, that had to be a crazy bounty uh, because Shopify, I think, has, I want to say they have 200k crits max, and that is a arbitrary account takeover. So congrats to Rosian and the, um, the Ophion security team. Alrighty. <clears throat> uh, next up, well, hold on, let, me, let me get some water. I got to take water between every, every uh, topic. Okay, next one is um, uh, a tool released by Monke, uh, a great hacker and Hack One ambassador. Um, uh, this is called Short Name Guesser. This is, uh, we talked about this, so, something similar to this a couple weeks ago, but essentially uh, with IIS, there is a way for you to specify short names and get a true or false uh, window short names. So I wanna say it's the first six characters. Um, that you can enumerate in the last three characters of any given file in a in a directory. Um, so, but oftentimes files are longer than six characters. So, <coughs> excuse me, you've got to um, you've got to figure out what the rest of that name is. Um, and I guess Monke decided that this is a a perfect um, use for GPT three and some of the AI capabilities that we've been. Um, playing with lately, uh, thanks to OpenAI. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, essentially if you if you know how LLMs work, they're actually just looking to develop the next token, right? The next the next token in line. And that's how they, they simulate um, all of this wonderful knowledge and comprehension that we've all been amazed by for the past, you know, six to eight months. Um, and so what he did here is he he uh, developed just a, a very short piece of code. You can see here it's like 35 lines um, to utilize uh, ChatGPT or the OpenAI um, API to get a list of potential file names uh, associated with a, a given short name. I think this is a great tool and I will be using this the next time I'm doing uh, IAS short name brute forcing. All right, I'm going to have to take a big sip of water before this one. Sam Curry has released something, y'all. Um, for those of you that are not familiar with Sam Curry's work, essentially every couple months, Sam and team, uh, whoever it tends to be that, that time around, releases some giant write-up that breaks the whole internet and destroys a whole industry <laughs> normally. And it's a excellent read. And I think it's really unique content um, because not many people, not any other people that I know of are out here um, addressing sort of industry-wide issues like Sam um, and just kind of going after you know, I, I I like to I'd like to talk it up, but it's really Sam just being like, you know, what would be the coolest shit I could hack, and then going and hacking that, and I just I love that about Sam. Um, and then he does these write ups, which bless him for doing these write ups. They're, they're so long and they're so detailed, and they really um, highlight the attacker mentality as they go through this. So um, this is also a mandatory read. Um, the James Kettle read earlier was absolutely a mandatory read. Um, this is also a mandatory read. So go read it. It's Sam Curry's uh, most recent write-up on points.com. It's entitled Leaking Secrets in Unlimited Miles, Hacking the Largest Airline and Hotel Rewards Platform. As you may have imagined, uh, this is Sam hacking points.com, which is a uh, provider of points for all of these different vendors. Um, he has a, for those of you watching, you can see here um, the list of vendors that he has, uh, but some of the top names include Delta, Emirates, uh, Marriott, um, IHG, 
so many different companies utilize points.com for their rewards programs. Um, and he does a high-level overview in the beginning, which we're going to skip, of course, because here at Critical Thinking, we do low-level overviews. We talk about the technical details, the juicy, the juicy technical details, and we get hype about that shit. So that's what we're doing. Um, essentially, what I've done is I've broken down um, each of the sections of the rest of this write-up, and I've got some key takeaways from all of the various sections, and I'm going to provide a short summary. But like I said, you're missing out on a ton of juicy data um, and hacking mentality and just vibing if you don't go and read this. Um, so uh, that's my, I, I've said my piece now. Okay, so first section is how does it all work? Um, this is kind of when he's he's discovering how this whole points.com thing works. He's using Wayback Machine to uh, read documentation and understand the details behind it. Um, and one thing that I wanted to highlight here is he, he gets to this uh, console.points.com, which allowed public registration, signs up for an account. And he says, um, I just want to take a quote out. The next thing we did was to examine the JavaScript that powered the dashboard. We discovered that the website console.points.com appeared to be utilized by points.com employees for executing administrative actions concerning customer accounts, rewards programs, and managing components of the website itself. Anytime you see something like this, I've, I've done this a couple times, where you have public sign up to an, a, a portal that is management for um, all of these different um, tenants that you'd be hacking. Uh, that's gold. Go in there, read the JavaScript files, figure out what it looks like to have those requests recreated in the background. I've personally made six figures in bounties from this exact scenario as well. Um, so that's a big takeaway there. I was also impressed, um, for those of you watching, you can see the graph here. For those of you not watching, um, essentially he has a graph where he's, uh, uh, outlined the way that the API, the rewards API does authentication. And unfortunately, it's a, a Mac-based authentication, which uh, I'm not going to lie. Like, if, if I was in Sam's shoes, I would have totally ignored this because I freaking hate Mac-based authentication. Um, essentially, how it works is you've got a key and you've got your message. And every single message that you send, every single freaking request needs to be... Um, run through this Mac algorithm and a, a message authentication code generated and that code included with the message um, to ensure that that message hasn't been tampered with and was sent from someone that has the key um, in order to send that. So um, that would be a pain in the butt, but that didn't scare Sam at all. Um, and they were able to do some really cool stuff, um, not only despite of it, but abusing that. So props to them for that. Next section is called Exploring the uh, United Airlines Point Management Website. So they take they move away from points.com after they've learned a lot about points how the points API works. And they go to specifically mileageplus.com, uh, bymiles.mileageplus.com, which is a uh, United product, um, which is infamously out of scope uh, in the United program, RIP. Um, and essentially what they do here is they go through the registration process and sort of figure out what's going on. Um, and then they do something that which we talk about all the time on critical thinking, which is they pay the freaking money to send miles to somebody else, right? We always say, you know, bite the bullet, pay your, in, in, the, in the picture that he's got right here, I just noticed he's has... $6,584 worth of miles he's sending somebody. I don't know that he actually sent that much, but if he did, that's that's ridiculous. Um, but he bites the bullet and he sends some miles, pays the money and sends some miles to somebody else, right? So, you know, it's Ian or Shub's happy day or whoever he's hacking with this time. They get some miles from Sam, but also what Sam gets in return uh, in the response of that um, HTTP request that sends the miles is the person's points.com user auth token, the membership authorization token, um, which is a big, a big L for points.com and the Mileage Plus United team. Um, and essentially what that allows you to do is by entering a person's first name, last name, and mileage, uh, a Mileage Plus number, which is their you know, account ID. Um, essentially you would get back their auth token from that request and you could use that auth token to log into their account, send the miles back to yourself um, and get a bunch of access to a bunch of PII. Huge, huge vulnerability. Um, great, great technique um, in finding that out. So takeaway there, pay the money, just pay the freaking money 
and uh, and you'll find lots of vulns like that. If you see a place where you should where you could pay money and it's like a reasonable amount of money, you should get really excited to pay that money. Like that is potentially some of the best money you'll have ever paid. You know, like you're gonna get some serious ROI on that. So um, that's what we always say. Whew, halfway through a Sam Sam Curry blog post, you got to take another sip of water. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the next section, escalating the issue to affect other rewards programs. Um, so at this point, what's happening is Sam is trying to figure out how exactly uh, the points.com uh, API is being integrated with all these other different providers. That He did that with United, and he's trying to do that with other um, providers as well. And he highlights uh, in the post this HTTP request right here, which um, for those of you not watching, uh, it's there's an HTTP request with a path, and then in the body it has two parameters: uh, MVP payload and LPID. LPID is a UUID, um, and MV payload is an empty um, object, an, an empty JSON object. So what he does here is very interesting. He appends a pound symbol to the end of that LPID parameter. The reason he's doing that is he is looking for. Uh, secondary context vulnerabilities. This is sort of a term, I feel like this term is actually coined by Sam himself. Um, uh, but this is sort of Sam's bread and butter. I've found multiple bugs with Sam where he exploits secondary context bugs and he's just a master at it. And essentially what's happening is he is assuming that this ID is getting taken and put into the points.com API in the backend um, that we were talking about earlier with the Mac authentication scheme and that sort of thing. Um, and he's trying to validate that by putting a hashtag in there, a pound sign, and what that will do is that will, in the uh, in the URL, it will create a hash fragment and truncate the rest of the um, the data that comes after that uh, that uh, UUID. And you can see from the response, he gets a 400 uh, bad request back, which um, tells him that he can't process it can't process type text HTML instead of application JSON. This is a great indicator that there is some sort of secondary context problems going on. Then Sam uh, proceeds to do all the tricks in the book. He's adding slashes. He's path traversing. He's using the, the uh, query parameter, the question mark to truncate and add additional query parameters. Um, he's doing all sorts of stuff. And essentially what he does is he uses a path traversal sequence to back all the way up um, to the document root, I believe, and specify um, maybe it's not the document root, maybe it's one above the document root, but you can specify, cool, cool tip, you can find the document root, this is actually a tip that Sam taught me, by traversing past the, the document root, and then you'll note that you'll get a 400 bad request on that. Um, so really, really helpful technique there that I've used several times. So for example, if the backend request is slash API slash get user slash user ID, and that ID is where you're injecting, if instead of the ID you put dot dot slash dot dot slash, now you've gone back to the root slash. If you do one more dot dot slash, you'll get a 400. That will allow you to identify the document root. Um, so uh, what we've got going on here is he traverses back and he hits an endpoint called slash v1 slash search slash, slash orders. Um, and then it says missing query parameter needed. So then he starts fuzzing for query parameters in the get using the um, what he assumed would be the get when he specifies the path via the LPID. Um, but unfortunately, nothing was working there. And he then decides to fuzz the MV payload section. Um, I'm going to start saying they instead of he, because I know that this is a team working on this. So they decide to fuzz the MV payload section uh, of that their original request, right, that we mentioned in the beginning, the one that had an empty object. And it turns out you're able to provide um, post parameters there. Um, and they provided the queue parameter, and then it dumped back a grand total of 22 million records um, back to them, um, leaking uh, points transactions across all of the providers. It was a god token that was being used. Um, just magnificent, magnificent vulnerability. Um, key takeaways there, learn how to do secondary context hacking. I've also got up on the screen here the wonderful presentation, legendary presentation by Sam, attacking secondary context in web applications. I will link it in the description. Uh, this is also mandatory reading if you haven't already. If you have, I would also recommend going back and rereading it because um, if you're not finding these vulns on a fairly regular basis, you probably should be because um, I am and Sam is. Uh, so uh, definitely check this out.
Um, and, and if you want another really cool example of this, which is almost identical to this vulnerability, Sam and I in 2020 found uh, a vulnerability on Starbucks, which does almost the exact same thing. You can see for those of you watching that um, we traverse back here and hit a slash search slash v1 slash accounts function, which dumps all of the Starbucks accounts um, that were that were uh, in the database. It was like 99 million records or something ridiculous like that. Um, so definitely, yeah, nearly 100 million records. Um, so definitely these villains are all over the place and you should definitely know how to exploit them. <laughs> okay, um, let's see what else we've got. Um, the next little section that I wanted to talk about was uh, this, uh, this is still within the Sam Curry blog post, <laughs> um, is leaking credentials for the Virgin Rewards Program. Um, so this is still within that blog post. Essentially what he, he happens here is he's kind of going around to all the different um, uh, sort of providers for that, that are using points.com. Um, and he's trying to figure out, you know, hey, is there any quirks in the implementation here? that we can exploit to attack points.com or attack their rewards program. And um, this is this is another, and we, we see a very a large variety of techniques, right, that, that have happened already. We've we've seen we've seen you know the exploitation of uh, you know, well just understanding JavaScript, uh, understand reading the documentation through Wayback. Um, we've seen secondary context vulns. Um, and right now in this one we're seeing uh, a content discovery vulnerability. So this is when Sam is just running, or Sam and team, they are running um, uh, just content discovery tools like Fuff, um, and they hit, they, they get a lucky hit on login1.php, and that login1.php leaks the Mac uh, key and Mac ID that we mentioned before that was used for op, uh, authentication into the rewards API. Now, if you see this, um, normally, you might not know what this is used for, but Sam and the team have developed a mastery of these this product. They've read everything they can get their eyes on. You know, they've 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 sorted through minified JS files. They understand what's happening here. So when they see that Mac ID and that Mac key, they know exactly what to do with that. So they're able to use that key to authenticate into the API as the Virgin Rewards program, um, and they were able to dump all of the uh, orders, all of the transactions that have happened, um, which includes, it looks like, actually plain text credit card information and over, looks like, 2 million instances of that. So that's real bad. Nice work, Sam and team. Um, the, next, the next one that we wanted to uh, talk about was uh, this section right here, authorization bypass uh, on widgets.united mileageplus.com. And this is, uh, once again, another technique um, <clears throat> that varies from the other ones. So we're not just looking for IDORs. We're not just looking for XSS. We're not just looking for secondary context bugs. We're looking for all of it. Um, and it, it requires a, a, a large knowledge base of different techniques in order to be able to fully exploit some of this stuff. So it's really impressive to see what Sam does. And it's also a good lesson to us to stay, to stay mentally flexible. Uh, on what kind of loans we're looking for and how we're looking for them. Um, so this next one that we're talking about here is uh, this. So we're back to widgets.unitedmileageplus.com or United Mileage Plus programs. Um, and essentially what they're doing here is they're using Gao to um, enumerate the the subdomains and the different pages, login pages that there were um, to log into this uh, widgets.unitedmileageplus.com. And they're, they're identifying that sometimes there is a page where you can log in with just your mileage plus number, your last name, and your first name. Sometimes it requires a username and password. Sometimes it requires, you know, um, a security question or uh, let's see what else. Yeah, answer your security question. There was a bunch of variety there. And in that variety, you know, they were noting that, that um, the responses to those were still returning a token that looked roughly the same, right? So I'm just reading a quote here. Um, uh, we found that the token returned from each of the different authorization methods were identical in format to each other. So once again, showing application mastery, understanding what that token looks like, and first knowing that that token is important and understanding what it looks like um, allowed them to understand that, hey, maybe I can take the token from the less challenging authentication method, the first name, last name, and mileage plus number, 
um, and use that token in the other sections of the application where a more challenging um, authentication method was supposed to be necessary. Um, and that's exactly what they did. And they were able to bypass auth and get access to a PII disclosure, um, transferring miles, essentially arbitrary access to their mileage plus account um, through that, that one login that gave them an access token via first name, last name, and mileage plus number. Really cool technique. That's a business logic error and token swapping, right? Business logic error identifying that there's that there shouldn't be a way to authenticate with that information. And then token swapping, knowing that they can take that auth token, put it somewhere else, and access valuable information. Really, really great, um, really great vulnerability there. Now, the finale. They say, <laughs> they say that that they still. Uh, let's see if I can find the. Uh, so one of the things that I really appreciate about Sam and and the team here uh, as they're writing this up is that. Mm. So he has a section named looking for something more critical, right? Like the bugs that he hasn't found, that he's found already, just not critical enough. You know, like we got to go max criticality. And they, they don't give up until they achieve it, which is really cool. Um, and they do achieve it uh, every time. So way to go team. Or at least every time that we're privy to, you know, maybe there are times when they've, they've quit out uh, a little early, but um, we get to see the highlights reel. So that's really cool. Um, so they go back to hunting on points.com and then finally they pop it. And how do they pop it? Is it some crazy, some crazy technical exploit that just kind of blows your mind and path traversally nonsense? No, it is the fact that the <laughs> JWT token associated with the session for the uh, console website was the word secret, all lowercase. Um, now this is, um, this is kind of crazy to see, to be honest. Um, this sort of vulnerability I've only found once, um, but Ian Carroll has released a vulnerability or a, um, a tool called Cookie Monster to exploit this vulnerability. And essentially what it does is it allows you to try to brute force um, and check defaults for session configurations in, uh, in various types of applications. I think this is a great vuln because um, once you exploit this vulnerability, if you have the secret key to, uh, you know, JWT token, you can do whatever the heck you want because you can sign the, th the only thing they're using for authentication, right? So in this scenario, I suppose they, they were looking at the, the session token a little bit more um, in depth and they identify the fact that um, I guess they ran it through Cookie Monster running a brute force against it. And a few sec, yeah, after a few seconds, we had a response. It popped that the secret, that the, that the um, uh, secret for this JWT token was secret. Um, and so this is a, a reminder to me and to you and to every other reader that we need to be on the lookout for these sort of weak cryptography implementation vulnerabilities here because um, they are all over the place. And man, they drop some awesome screenshots um, in here of like literally just being able to arbitrarily select a program, you know, uh, a rewards program and just assign uh, points to them. And man, you could just literally, you could just walk around the whole world, you know, doing whatever you wanted with this pretty much because you just have unlimited access to all of these points. So really cool. Awesome that they got access to that and really cool techniques along the way as well. So props to Sam and the team. Um, nice bug. All right, water time. We're moving along. We are. We're moving along. Okay. Um, so like I promised, in between a technical piece, we'll have a uh, sort of less technically dense segment. Um, this time around, uh, another another tweet from uh, Alex Chapman saying, I'm in desperate need of a platform feature browser plugin or something else that can easily show a bug bounty program's direct competitors who also run programs. Um, so many bugs from one company are directly applicable to others in the same industry slash niche. And then Rezo comes along and says, dude, this would be a sick product. Um, what if there were a way to like tag specific functionality as well uh, on specific bug bounty programs? For example, you could um, identify a bug bounty program and tag that, hey, this has got a, a PDF generator in it or something like that, where there's specific technologies in place. This one's using Flask, right? Because like from the last scenario, we could go back and check the JWT um, token implementation. Um, 
And and so uh, he Rezo tagged me in it and said, "Hey, shout it on the pod. Maybe someone will make it." And um, we've had that happen before. We shouted out this uh, this concept for a CVSS advisor, where you, which I've got up on the screen now, uh, you can find it at cvsadvisor.com, where you can just sort of select what um, you know different uh, what what your CVSS configuration is, and it will give you tips and. Um, what sort of configurations need to change for you to bump your bug to the next severity. Shout out to them again. Appreciate them building that. And also, uh, this is my go-to CVSS tool now. So um, definitely keep that in mind. But also, if any of you guys are looking into uh, or feeling programmy or um, want to try to decide a way or figure out a way to tag um, various bug bounty programs anonymously, obviously, because we've got private programs, um, with specific uh, features or fe functionality, I think this is something that would be widely used by hackers. So cool idea there. Alrighty, stretch. Last uh, last write-up that we're gonna cover for today. This is a uh, zero-click ATO with sandwich attack. This is um, recently released uh, by Lupin and Holmes. Uh, this is a uh, man, look how beautiful this website. It's just an absolutely beautiful website, L and H.tech. Um, this is uh, by Ronnie Carta, uh, also known as Lupin on Twitter. Um, and yeah, essentially, I think they're going to be producing bug bounty content, and this is a great place to start. This write up is on um, this concept called the sandwich attack, which abuses uh, version one UUIDs or UID version one. Okay, so um, for those of you that aren't familiar with UUIDs, UUIDs are, <laughs> for those of you that aren't familiar with UUIDs, thank your lucky stars because they're becoming more and more common all over the place and they're a pain in the ass. Um, but essentially they're uh, an alternative for numeric IDs that should be associated with an object. So user ID equals one. Instead of that, you've got user ID equals F887AA6, you know, blah, 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 right? Um, and so these are very long strings, randomly generated normally, but not in this case. Um, they contain five different sort of segments. Um, and the, uh, the segment that you should look to for uh, the version number is the third segment. So um, for those of you that are uh, have the, following along on YouTube right now, you can see right here the, the first character of the third segment of the UUID is a one in this scenario. Uh, normally, it's going to be a four. If it's a four, that UUID was randomly generated, and you have very little chance of being able to uh, iterate across those uh, UUIDs or enumerate them. Now, if you know you got really lucky, or or you found a a piece of technology that uses UUID v1, that third segment, the first character will be a one. And what that tells us is that this is not a randomly generated UUID. This is a UUID that is predictable um, and is highly correlated with a timestamp. Um, so uh, Lupin and the Lupin and Holmes team here do a really great job in this write-up of describing how uh, this concept called the sandwich attack. Uh, in, the, in the scenario they define, there's a password reset endpoint. That password reset uses UUID v1 reset tokens in order to access um, to reset the password. So the attack would be, excuse me, the attack would be um, you reset your own account. That's the first, you know, first layer of bread. You reset the victim's account. That's the meat. And then you reset the, uh, your account again. And that's, that's the top layer of bread, right? So you have two reference UUIDs, um, V1 IDs. Uh, those are the two pieces of bread. Um, and those will tell you the range of time, because uh, uh, because UUIDs correlate UUID v1 correlates directly to timestamps. Um, the range of time you need to brute force for the middle ID, right? So then you use a tool to enumerate uh, all of the possible UUIDs in that range, and then you um, try those UUIDs in order to gain access to the victim's account um, by the password reset functionality. Great attack! Uh, I found something similar to this before. Um, and uh, one of the things I will say is we can actually utilize this in conjunction with uh, a race condition-ish sort of thing um, that we mentioned, you know, earlier in the in the the pod uh, with James Kettle to make sure that these sandwiches, you know, that this is a very thin sandwich, right? That you can that your first request, the second request, and third request are all in a very small time period because, as he mentions here, um, these are in millisecond timestamps, um, right? So. For every second that these are off, you have 1,000 possibilities 
uh, for what could, you know, that you're gonna have to brute force. So you wanna try to get these as tight as possible um, and you should be able to get an arbitrary account takeover in these sort of situations. All right, um, I will also note that uh, in, in conjunction with this write-up that we will be putting in the in the description below, there's also this awesome video uh, that Lupin put out on the, their YouTube channel um, walking through the actual details and he does a lot better job of explaining it than I did. So definitely check that out. Also, if you just like looking at things with your eyes, uh, this is a beautifully produced um, video. So uh, very high production quality here. Shout out to them for that. That takes a lot of work. I'm realizing that more and more as I as I sort of go deeper and deeper into the content creation realm. <clears throat> so um, great work, work, Lupin and Holmes team there. Man, that's such a cool name. I love that. Um, all right, so that's it for today. That's all I've got. Um, definitely uh, thank you for listening to this episode. Hopefully Joel will be uh, back and kicking next week so we can do a, a duo episode as usual. Um, if you guys wouldn't mind heading over to ctbb.show and dropping a subscribe on our newsletter, we'd really appreciate that. We're trying to grow that within the next couple months. Also, um, for those of you that have heard me talk about my real estate investments on the podcast before, I have a big accomplishment. I'm done with the reno that I've been working on for the past uh, six to eight months. So super hyped about that. Should be able to drop more time into the pod and into bug bounty hunting, um, which you guys will hopefully see lots of. Um, so with that, have a great week and thanks for listening. Bye.